Hello and welcome to the Talking Health Tech Podcast. I'm Rivka. And I'm Kim. We're excited to bring you a standout episode from our Medicubes podcast while the Talking Health Tech team are enjoying a break. I'm Chris and today's episode focuses on creating a medical practice environment for more accessible healthcare, a topic that's incredibly important in today's health landscape. We're joined by Deb Walter, a pioneering practice owner, to discuss how healthcare environments can be more inclusive, particularly for those with disabilities. Yeah, and it's a thought-provoking dialogue covering the National Disability Insurance Scheme and its role in making healthcare more accessible. I've got to say this episode is a must-listen for anyone interested in understanding and improving personalised care individuals with unique health challenges. So let's dive in and don't forget to subscribe to the Medicubes podcast for more episodes just like this. All the information you need is right there in the show notes of this episode. Hey, welcome to the Medicubes podcast, where we bring you all that's good, exciting and sometimes challenging in primary health care. I'm Chris Spee, joined by my good friends Kim Pointer and Rivka Hagen. Together we bring a wealth of experience and passion, as well as being in the thick of what's going on in our industry. We used to have a laugh, debrief and chat about all the big issues and what was happening in our own professional worlds and invite you to join us in this conversation. So join us and our invited guests every month to bring you a lighthearted take on the latest, greatest and controversial issues and a few pearls of wisdom along the way. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. A hearty welcome from Virapai country. And uh, Rivka Hagen here. I'm meeting you from Jajawurrung country. And a big hello from Turbul and Jagara country. So, hearty hi to uh, everyone coming to join the podcast again today, and we are so excited to have with us in the studio, Deb Walter. Deb, for 11 years, has been the practice owner and manager of Sanctuary Medical Practice in Fletcher, New South Wales. She's the fellow of AAPM, and she's also a non-executive board director. Deb works also as an accreditation surveyor, and she uh, obviously visits practices to assess their compliance to the RACGP standards, and she's also a trained NDIS auditor. Now, Deb has been invited onto the show because she has got a wealth of knowledge and understanding of people with disabilities and the difficulties they face in, you know, working through and intersecting with healthcare organisations. And we thought what an interesting topic to bring to our audience because our mind doesn't always focus on these areas. You know, we're thinking about accreditation and we're thinking about Medicare and we're thinking about financial viability and this notion of disability, it often just kind of flies a little bit under the radar. So we thought we would uh, come and shine a bit of a light on that. So Deb is the mum of a son, Charlie, living with spina bifida and an intellectual disability. And she is therefore hugely passionate about accessibility and inclusion in healthcare. So a very warm welcome to you, Deb. It is absolutely wonderful to have you along. So as you will know, we ask all of our guests to bring a bit of information about themselves and an interesting fact to set the scene for today's podcast. Tell us, Deb, what's your interesting story to set the scene for us today? 
Thanks, Rivka. Well, with such a busy life in health and as a mum, you're aware of having to relax and downtime. We hear about burnout in health and that sort of thing. So the way in which I relax is to spend time in my paddocks. So I'm fortunate enough to live on an acreage and quite like power tools, brush cutters, knocking down lots lots of grass, bush, that sort of stuff to make nice gardens and can use a tractor. So loves spending time on my tractor and my tractor therapy. And that's how I get my quiet time. It's amazing. Nobody will bother you when you are on a tractor. They will not call you. They will not call out to you. You don't hear mom. You don't hear your phone. It's just lovely, peaceful time. What a wonderful escape and a very productive tool. I would imagine if you're you're living on a farm that you can both get away from the daily stresses and actually get stuff done too. What a what a tick tick right there. Absolutely. It is extremely satisfying to see full fence line all knocked down. And you just go, that just looks amazing. It is just, yeah, it does. It ticks that box as well. Fantastic. And so on today's podcast, we are, of course, joined by the fellow panellists, Chris Mead and Kim Pointer. So a hearty hi to you both as well. So Deb, let's get started. Can you tell us a little bit about your son, Charlie, and some of the common challenges that he faces in navigating a world that doesn't always cater for his needs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Charlie is in a wheelchair and that's difficult itself. I mean, when he was younger and he was quite small, we'd just lift him. We'd lift the little wheelchair. That's getting increasingly difficult. He's 17 now. He's still quite small for his age, but it's getting to that point where we need to have hoists and lifts and all sorts of things involved. Um, So that's hard, but I still think his biggest challenge is the intellectual disability. It is his neurodiversity and the people around him not always understanding that. I know that we've gone through a period of time where we probably isolated ourselves. That's probably how I ended up on an acreage because he would have meltdowns. It was hard for him to regulate his emotions. And you do, you feel a little bit judged from people around you, whether you're in the supermarket or wherever you are. It's been hard for him because, you know, obviously so much has happened to him and his body and those feelings of being out of control and not people around not necessarily understanding, you know, why he's melting down. Um, as part of his neurodiversity, it was a little bit unusual, but he has never liked the sound of a crying baby or like that toddler squeal. So when you were on the paediatric ward of a hospital, it was just so difficult for him to do that. It would be exhausting because, you know, obviously the kids around are crying because they're in hospital as well, and it's been tough on him. We've had to run from cafes because, you know, we've had a little toddler squealing, even happy squeals, and we've just had to bolt. But it's not something that, you know, he can help, and it's hard sometimes for people to understand why that is happening. Yeah, I've just mentioned, you know, a lot of triggers for Charlie there and also for yourselves navigating those social sort of settings. What about healthcare settings particularly for someone with a disability what's some of the problems and challenges that may come up well as I said like if you look from a hospital setting it was it's tough to be around other people in the waiting room where there were little kids I can remember back to when he first started in those and we would get through outpatients as quick as anything because the staff knew and I suppose if we translate that to 
primary health care or in general practice, it's it's just knowing who those people are. It's it's hard to have a set rule to go, this is how we're going to deal with every person with disability because it's all going to be different. So it really does come down to staff that genuinely care and they know you're going to come in and they're, they're going to help out. Charlie used to have a specialist we'd visit regularly and it was right in the middle of the city and it was tough, but they always made sure we had a parking spot and that he had a quiet space to go into when he arrived and it made the world a difference. It wasn't a huge thing, but it made a huge difference. And also that he needs his supports. And I think a lot of people, especially through the lockdowns, felt that. But, you know, he needs somebody with him. He couldn't go in, even at 17, he couldn't go into a health facility on his own. He would want either myself, his dad, or one of his brothers or his twin sister with him just to support him. So just thinking of that, but it's really tough for health facilities. There's not a one fit all. So I'm hearing that you're talking about, you know, that advocacy role and support structure around there. What about healthcare professionals engaging Charlie? What, what's some subtle things that you think make a big difference? Talking to Charlie rather than talking to us, the parents, and explaining to him what is going to happen. So we prepare Charlie for anything. And especially in health, we tell him exactly what's going to happen and the steps. Charlie will start to repeat that back to us. And that's when we know he's accepting that process. So yesterday he had to have an x-ray and it was a difficult one. We had to sit on a stool. It was really closed in and the staff just had to give that time to say, this is what's going to happen, Charlie. And we thought we had done everything, but we actually missed the loud sound. And then that was a trigger. So it's thinking, how is that person going to cope? And allowing them the time, it's going to take a little bit longer to explain that process and for them to understand what is about to go on. I have seen Charlie have a flu vaccine where we were concerned that it's going to be a little bit hurt. We had him so prepared, he was nearly excited. So we had gone one step too far. So I, I had my flu vaccine and then his twin sister had his and he's like, me next, I'm next, I want to go next. And then when he got it, he's looked at us like we were mad. Like, why were we all so excited? <laughs> it's crazy. But um, it's being prepared and just taking that extra moment for the nurse or doctor or health professional to just explain what's going to happen in very clear steps. So uh, I know as, as a practice manager and someone being around health for a long time, Deb, there's been so much talk about the NDIS and what it means and, and, and the dignity of, of people in, in the program. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I think sometimes I just got overwhelmed with paperwork and things like that that I don't, putting my hand up, didn't quite understand how it all fitted together and what it meant, meant to you and your family. But if you could tell me about that, I'd be, I'd be really grateful. Yeah, the NDIS was a huge thing. And, you know, like everything, it, it's not perfect and we're making our way. I heard somebody say that, you know, if you compare it to something like Medicare that's got a huge history now, NDIS is still very much in its infancy. But when it was announced, and I can actually remember it being announced that it was going to happen, it was huge. So Charlie is actually catheterized. We do that four times a day. So that's an in-out catheter because his bladder doesn't work or his pelvic floor. So we used to have to pay for that prior to NDIS. And, you know, it was thousands and thousands of dollars basically for Charlie to be able to go to the toilet. 
and that was not something that was covered by any funding. Obviously, when NDIS turned up, they cover that. Mm. I mean, it was just so diverse and that's got good and bad. It's excellent that a lot of things are covered. The flip side of that is there is so much in there that it's really hard to navigate Mm. and to work out what sort of funding you should have. So we found that difficult. But the NDIS, you know, has provided all sorts of things for Charlie because they do take that individual approach and the client is at the centre of the funding, Mm. not so much the health professionals around them. So it did change Charlie dramatically. When I look at it from the health perspective, I probably am concerned that a lot of people are not on NDIS, that should be, because they can't get those documents Mm. and they can't navigate that very complex system. Uh, No, I was going to say, so if you were talking to a a practice manager, we're talking to all the practice managers now who were sort of, you have that that really amazing, having seen it from both sides, what would your advice be to someone who's, I know I've had someone present at my, my office door and just sort of look, where do I start? What do I do? What would be your your little tidbits or bits of wisdom that you would give to that PM to help? You know, it would be good to have templates created for health professionals so that they could easily put those documents together. But given how many different disability diagnosis, all of those things, it, it is tough. It'd be nice for us to work towards that as a collective if we were able to share, you know, mm. we've had someone come in, we've done a template for NDIS, we would share with everyone. Um, if that comes through your practice and those that slowly built up as a resource that we would all have because I do think that is the biggest thing and also it's the funding behind it as you would know, Chris, yeah. and I'm a practice manager, is the first thing that would be asked is what do I bill yeah. or how is this paid for when I do this paperwork and there's no easy answer for that at the moment, to be honest. Deb, can I ask you too about the disability health assessments that are available? And I was just kind of thinking about that as we're talking through sort of templates and documentation and and where primary care kind of intersects there. We know that there is the category of eligibility for people with disabilities to receive an annual health assessment, but that kind of flies a little bit under the radar, doesn't it? How do you incorporate that in, uh, in your primary care work? Absolutely. We do use that at our practice. So we have a a lot of disability patients at our practice, obviously probably because, you know, we work there. And yeah, we do. We go through those assessments. Also the case conference Mm. item number we use quite a bit. But it, it does take managers to sit down and think, you know, a little bit differently and outside the box to say, well, how can I fund that? Deb, on that note, I've had many nurses who are really keen to provide a disability health assessment and they're always looking for a fabulous template. I'm wondering where would you refer people to to get this really fantastic template that includes and respects that dignity that we're striving for? Well, to date, we have sort of put ours together ourselves at the practice And we've faced each hurdle, I suppose, as a team. To be honest, I'm not aware of a good source out there where we can get those health ones. I'm then really just curious, and I'm just putting it out there, Deb, say no if it's something that, you know, you treasure at your practice. But I'm wondering if you would share that to our listeners. Because as I said, I have not found one to date that really honours that respect 
dignity, inclusion that we're seeking. So would you be happy to share that to our listeners? Yeah, so so a template for just a health assessment or something, yeah? Yeah, yeah. totally. And, you know, I know that a lot of practice nurses who I've worked with would love that because everyone keeps saying, you know, we just can't find something that really honours and respects what we're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it, it's, it is about recording, you know, also the patient's you know, what they're saying to us about their health, not just everyone assuming what they want. That's, it's such a common theme, isn't it, Deb, that we forget to ask about what can we do to make this experience better for you that we sort of really try to layer our own interpretation of what might be helpful and it can be really counterproductive, can't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's not that carers don't know and it's well-meaning or parents or even health professionals, but you don't know what they want fixed or looked at. So I think it's important to do that. At the moment, with Charlie being 17, we're having to go through that process of guardianship and financial management under the state of New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And it seems quite confronting as parents to say, well, we've got to ask the state permission, you know, to look after our son. But in that, when I've been going through the paperwork Charlie has to attend a hearing. He has to communicate with them and and they're going to ask him, is this what you want? And it's the right thing. It's the right thing to say, well, they have to have some say in that. You know, there are decisions that he can't make. They will be too complicated. But he's got to write in saying who is going to be the people who are going to make those decisions for me. I don't know from your perspective but one of the practices that I recently did some health assessment work with, we were talking about, they have a lot of um, people with disabilities coming in. They're in tweed heads. And they were saying that the challenge for them as staff is often people with disabilities will come in with a carer that doesn't even know them. And so they're asking, going through a health assessment whereby the carer can't answer 90% of the form. So I don't know if we want to go there or not there or what's your thoughts? Yes. And we do see huge staff turnover in the disability group homes, which we have quite a, a lot of. And it's um, for us, we refer to it as, oh, good, we're going to start all over again. And it, it really frustrates. Are there any sort of you know, practical recommendations on, I mean, it's a fact, isn't it, that those transporters, carers are not going to be necessarily in the know is there anything that we can do to make that better? I mean, I have I have tried as far as consistent communication with organisations that, that work in disability as well with health. I think sometimes they're not understanding the health system and probably vice versa. We may not be completely understanding their system. It is an issue, what you're saying, as far as we do get workers come in it sometimes makes our health professionals feel undervalued, like they are ticking boxes rather than providing healthcare because we will yeah. get paperwork come through and it's, you know, your doctor has to fill this out. So, Deb, we've talked about, you know, the underutilisation of health assessments with people with disabilities. And I've also then encouraged you to share, and thank you so much for doing that, with our community a really comprehensive template that's going to be meaningful and respectful and have that dignity that we want to honour. I'm just also wanting to make sure before practices go and jump into this space, what are some subtle tips and tricks that you would give them that, to help them navigate through this process? Yeah, I mean, it is not 
it's not a simple process and you have to remember that there's a whole nother sector that's going to be involved, which is the disability service-like sector. So we actually have someone dedicated to that at our practice, an admin person who coordinates all of those messages. The paperwork that comes in is huge and she sort of makes it a little bit more prepared before it goes before the health professionals just to try and get that efficiency. Our staff obviously know when they answer the phones where to direct that, but it has been a lot of setting up at our practice and, it, and it's not perfect. I'm not saying we've got all the answers because we don't. We are still, you know, navigating that. I would like to do more, but given the difficulties in the system, I feel like at the moment we are at capacity unless something changed to improve that efficiency. We also sometimes feel that we've built relationships with people in group homes and we have quite a lot. So we, we deal with around 20 different disability group homes um, and we only have four GPs at our practice. And then there will be staff turnover, like everywhere in the country. You know, there's a change of staff, we start again and we have to go through that whole lot, everything we've done, all those things we've built, we start again because these will be the people that come in with those patients and advocate on their behalf or try to tell us what is going on health-wise. We often see that they present to hospital more when we, we see a change in a manager or support workers because those things that we've put in place are, you know, are not necessarily being followed like they were when the other people were in place. And it's just that learning process for the new staff coming in. It's not an easy place to go into, but I have to say we wouldn't change it and we're determined not to change it. Um, I often try to find better ways to do communication and I would be happy if anybody told me there was a better way of doing this and we could try to incorporate that because it's, it's important that we provide this service. Everyone has a right to healthcare and to be able to come to their community practice, not necessarily be shipped off somewhere else that's not a part of their community. Deb, I think... One of the amazing things is you bring that sort of lens as, as a practice owner, a manager, as a family member, but also as a surveyor. And I'm sure you've visited some some um, practices over your time. If you had like three or four tips, or maybe if you had a new receptionist starting in your practice, or a way to frame it in a way that is, what are some concrete things we can do to help our reception team when they're on the desk for the first time, or they're just staying out of the practice, or orientating them to be the best possible people in these sorts of situations? Include disability awareness training mm -hmm. as part of an orientation. There is like a whole lot of disability awareness online webinars that they can do and make that as part of your orientation. I mean, I will talk to staff about how to communicate with patients, but also include communication tips for people with disability. And as I've said before, to talk to the person with disability, not directly to the carer or parent. We'll engage both, but definitely engage the person with disability. Have you got some, some further practical examples of what some of those communication tips are that you impart to your staff? Well, for us, they're really quite lighthearted and fun. We like to form that relationship. We, we just remember the patients. We remember what they like. We have one disability patient that always comes in a football jersey and all the staff will talk about the football on the weekend. We just try to make that experience in the waiting room a little bit more fun and lighthearted. So for us, when we're training the staff, is 
well, yes, you do need to do the three identifiers. You do need to check the person incorrectly, but you know, you're allowed to have some fun and talk to them about what they've been up to. Because you do find that people with disability, especially um, with intellectual disability, they really connect and you become a part of their life and their story. Thanks for that, Deb. Just in terms of the experiences of people with a disability in our healthcare workplaces, what can you tell us about actually working with people uh, who experience disabilities and how can we make our workplaces more inclusive so that we can enhance that experience and perhaps, you know, tap into a whole other workforce that perhaps is currently quite excluded from a role within healthcare. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I have actually seen a couple of medical practices that have employed people that are neurodiverse and intellectual disability. I did see one GP practice, they had somebody working with them that had Down syndrome. And they did such an amazing job. So there are roles within the practice. And, you know, I think if we be a little bit creative, so especially around the team as far as packing medical equipment, they were even doing some infection control with the nurse. The nurses in that practice had really embraced that person and and they were a part of that role. And it, it worked really well. So I just think we have to think about that stuff and be a little bit more creative. The one thing that I will say and is that sometimes, and I love, I want to say I love the standards, obviously I work in the standards, but sometimes they are quite rigid and we probably need to think about that. So maybe thinking a little bit about every single staff member has to have CPR. Is that always going to be possible? Are they going to understand that course or does that need to say most people within a practice need to have that? For us to think about our workplace and are we being too rigid as well and excluding people. And I would also take that as far as carers and parents of people with disability. We don't want to exclude them from the workforce either. Some great advice there. Deb, is there anything else that you wanted to add to the conversation, anything that we haven't asked that you think we should have? No, I don't think so. I just think, you know, it would be good to see more practices involved Mm with disability and having it as you know part of their strategic plan or part of who they are part of their identity we have practices that definitely identify themselves as working in aged care um, and it would be good to see similar with disability it would be nice to see funding that came along with that as well and improved practices being able to keep that sustainable and i think you know we don't want to see people being excluded from healthcare. Well, look, I've loved this conversation and I guess my my final thought on this uh, this topic is what an amazing mm. focus for a quality improvement activity would be within practice teams to think about how we can improve the experience for people with disabilities within our practice and perhaps including our staffing needs as well and see what individual practices can come up with as next tangible, meaningful steps that they can take to improve that experience there. So I want to uh, thank you most sincerely for giving up your time and sharing your story of your lived experience with with Charlie. And we certainly wish him all the best uh, and certainly in his his healthcare journey as well. So thank you so much for that. Thanks, Deb. 
Thanks for listening to the Medicubes podcast. Make sure you subscribe via your favorite podcast listening app so you don't miss an episode. Medicubes is brought to you by Cubico, MediCoach and Medical Business Services with technical support from the awesome crew at Talking Health Tech. This podcast presents information of a general nature and we recommend that you obtain professional advice for your individual circumstances always. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions and suggestions for future topics on the show. Make sure you visit us via the Minicubes website, which you can access via the show notes of this episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show, write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with someone who might get some value from it so we can continue to share these important messages with more people. Speak to you next time.